What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Hi, I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer, one of the voices behind the CNBC podcast Squawk Pod. In these times of uncertainty, we want to make sure we're bringing you, our listeners, as much information as possible as quickly as we can. That's why we're sharing with you now a CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil. Listen in. Good evening. I'm Scott Wapner on day 128 of the coronavirus crisis. And tonight, new details on a bombshell whistleblower complaint against the Trump administration. This is the fight of our lives. The race for a vaccine. We could have millions of doses in October. Human trials are underway. Tonight, risks and rewards. There's no reason to rush back. Plus, new fears a new outbreak is imminent. But we don't have conclusive evidence in any of that. And how intelligence officers are trying to answer the question, did the virus come from a Chinese lab? This CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil, begins right now. Here's Scott Wapner. And it is good to have you with us on this Tuesday night. We start with damning new details of a whistleblower lawsuit filed by the doctor who was leading the effort to find drugs and vaccines to fight the coronavirus. Stat News reporter Nick Florco is with us live. Nick, it's good to have you. This story is leading your site tonight. What can you tell us about this complaint? Sure. So Dr. Bright, who was reassigned last month from his head as the, uh, the head of the Biomedical Advanced Research and Development Authority, this government organization that works with industry to fund treatments, uh, including for coronavirus, is alleging that he was reassigned due to longstanding clashes with his boss, Dr. Bob Cadlick. And remember, he is saying that he's a whistleblower here. So he's saying that these aren't your average stats between a boss and employee. He's saying that he repeatedly had to blow the whistle over his boss, Dr. Bob Cadlick's cozy relationship with certain companies and industry consultants. And he's laying out a number of examples that he alleges show that Cadillac directly pressured him to dole out BARDA money to some of Cadillac's favorite companies. And with that as the backdrop, Bright outlines a number of times that he clashed with Cadillac on coronavirus response that only further strained that relationship. Let's go through some of the allegations here. Bright says he was forced to buy drugs not based on health needs, but, quote, political connections and cronyism. He said he was pressured to approve a plan to, quote, flood cities with unproven and untested doses of chloroquine. Those are drugs like hydroxychloroquine. And that is the drug, for those who don't remember, uh, the drug that the president repeatedly touted himself uh, until a warning that it wasn't necessarily safe, right? Yeah, that's correct. So that's one of the most interesting parts of this complaint. As viewers may remember, Bright alleged when he was first reassigned last month, that the final straw that got him transferred was his resistance to support hydroxychloroquine. And he backs that up in the complaint today. So he explains through written statements and through internal emails that a directive came down directly from HHS Secretary Alex Azar to allow widespread use of chloroquine. And that he, along with FDA's drug center chief, Janet Woodcock, worked basically around the clock for two days to restrict the use of the drug to only hospitalized patients. 
Yeah, it's interesting. It goes on to say, quote, lack of leadership and action by HHS has placed the health and safety of all Americans at risk of not being protected from the virus, even when a vaccine becomes available. Bright also says that he tried to get the administration to scale up on N95 masks and other uh, supplies, but that he wasn't taken seriously. Yeah, that's correct. So Bright lays out a number of times in early January where he brought up the mask issue. Uh, there's emails actually between him and a mask manufacturer talking about this issue and him trying allegedly to get the attention of HHS leadership to take this seriously and to get more masks into the stockpile. Can you, for our viewers, just shed light on how important Dr. Bright was to this nation's vaccine efforts if they're first hearing his name tonight for the first time? 100 percent. So what Barta likes to call itself, it likes to call itself the uh, the closest thing the government has to a venture capital firm. So basically, Barta doles out money to all the companies that are trying to develop coronavirus treatments to tests, uh, swabs, masks. They provide critical funding that otherwise might not be available, and they help these companies get through the FDA approval process. So they had a role in a number of the tests that got early approval. They have a hand in a lot of the most splashy vaccine work. For example, Moderna Therapeutics, they're working with them on their potential coronavirus vaccine. Dr. Bright really had his hand in almost every industry project on coronavirus. So he really is crucial. Nick, we appreciate your reporting. Thank you for being with us. Nick Florco again with Stat News. I should also tell you there is a statement out tonight from Health and Human Services, and they say, quote, Dr. Bright was transferred to NIH to work on diagnostics testing critical to combating COVID-19, where he has been entrusted to spend upwards of $1 billion to advance that effort. We are deeply disappointed that he has not shown up to work on behalf of the American people and lead on this critical endeavor. Again, that's from a HHS spokesperson this evening. With us once again tonight as well is the CNBC contributor, Dr. Scott Gottlieb. He's the former FDA commissioner as well. Dr. Gottlieb, it's good to see you. You know Dr. Bright. You've told us you worked with him. Uh, tell us what you think about this story tonight. Well, look, I think that the complaint and the episode is unfortunate. What it's going to have the effect of setting aside all the allegations in the complaint and the substance, the net effect is that companies that do need to be collaborating with Barter right now are going to be re more reluctant to do it because this is going to cast a cloud over the organization um, and they're going to be reluctant to embrace Barter and try to seek resources from the organization. So at the very time that we need a fully functional Barter, I think on the margin, this will make more companies um, that much more reluctant to engage that process. Had you heard again about any of these allegations that Dr. Bright makes that he tried to get the administration to scale up on supplies like N95 masks, but that he wasn't taken seriously? These have circulated in the press um, for some time, at least some of them. Um, you know, I haven't heard them personally because I wasn't involved in uh, the response to COVID. I had left the administration before that. But some of these had circulated previously. I don't know the veracity of the allegations. I know Rick Bright. Um, I trusted him. Um, he was a truthful, uh, you know, fellow to me. I worked closely with him when I was at FDA. Um, so, you know, I would take what Rick says seriously, but I don't know the substance of these individual complaints. So if you were to tell us about Dr. Bright's character, you would say that he is a man of, of integrity? He was a straight shooter. I mean, he was a straight arrow with me. Um, we worked close together. I testified alongside him when I was at, in con uh, testifying before Congress. Um, where we worked on an Ebola product together, Ebola vaccine. We worked on a smallpox therapeutic that we got over the finish line that he helped fund, helped support. 
So we did some important work together, and I always found him to be uh, pretty straight up. Let's talk about another big story today. Uh, that is Pfizer, of course, beginning human trials for its vaccine. You are on the board of directors of, of Pfizer. Remove yourself from sitting on the board of directors for a moment and just tell us how significant this is and how optimistic you may be. It's significant. It's a pretty robust phase one, phase two study. The press release is available um, for people to uh, scrutinize, and I tweeted it out today as well from my my Twitter feed. But it's one of a number of projects that are underway, efforts underway by major manufacturers, U.S. manufacturers, to try to secure a vaccine and be able to manufacture it both domestically and abroad. Merck has a project underway. Um, Johnson & Johnson has an advanced project underway. Pfizer has one underway. And then there's a number of foreign manufacturers as well, like Sanofi Aventis is working on a product as well, collaborating with GSK. Um, So there's a number of robust, large efforts underway. It also includes a number of smaller manufacturers here in the United States, Moderna, Anovia. So we have a lot of efforts underway. And and what's good about the efforts that we're undertaking is that they're diverse. They're all different approaches to trying to develop a coronavirus vaccine. Some of them rely on pretty old technology or old approaches, protein vaccines, like what Sanofi's doing. Some of them rely on much more novel approaches, like what Pfizer's doing or what Moderna's doing with an mRNA approach. Um, J&J's taking an adenoviral vector vaccine approach, which is similar to what the Chinese are doing and what AstraZeneca's doing with their collaboration with Oxford. So that's a good thing, that we have diverse um, efforts underway. They're all slightly different because one or more of these has to work and hopefully multiple manufacturers work. We really need more than one U.S. pharmaceutical company to succeed at developing a vaccine if we're going to have enough to both supply the U.S. population as well as other countries. News of the vaccine, of course, comes as there's another study out today, Dr. Gottlieb, from Los Alamos, that suggests there's another strain of the virus that's become more dominant and even more contagious than the first. What do we know? Well, I think we need to be careful interpreting that. It was a computational analysis looking at sequence strains and and finding some um, differences between the different strains, basically a single um, amino acid chain change in the strain of the virus between two different strains that they observed. They haven't done any work to correlate that with actual clinical performance of the virus, whether or not it actually made the virus behave differently. We had a similar thing happen with Ebola in West Africa, where there was a mutation that caused a single amino acid change. And that was actually um, looked at in cell cultures. And in the cell cultures, it in fact demonstrated that it made the virus more contagious. Um, But when it was put into animal studies, there was no no difference shown. And this uh, particular finding from Los Alamos, they haven't even experimented with the virus in cell cultures to demonstrate that this change would make the virus more um, virulent or more contagious in cell culture models of coronavirus, let alone testing it in animal studies or correlating it with outcomes in people. So we're a long way from concluding that this actually has an effect on how the virus behaves in humans. Or perhaps a bit of a reality check. We thank you for that tonight. Let's talk about testing. Speaking of reality checks, today the president said, and I'm quoting here, we have so much testing, I don't think you need that much testing. However, today on CNBC as well, Dr. Gottlieb, the CEO of Atlantic Health System said, quote, we're not anywhere near where we need to be. Uh, Do we need more tests? We need more testing, um, for sure. And as we head into June, I think we're going to see a lot of capacity start to come onto the market in June and July and August. I think by the fall, we're going to have a lot of testing available. And the challenge isn't going to be the testing platforms, 
but the sites performing the tests. We need to make sure that um, doctors' offices and places of employment are willing to perform tests, that we can get these out into the community. But the shortage won't be the actual testing platforms. Right now, over the month of May, we still have a shortage of testing platforms. We'd like to be performing more tests. It's ramping very quickly. We're performing probably about 1.5 million tests a week right now. I think a good number to try to get to would be about 3 million. I think we'd really feel the difference if we were out at about 3 million in terms of more availability in the community and not just around hospitals. We'll get there towards the end of the month. We'll probably even get to 2 million mid-month, but we're not quite there yet. We still have a ways to grow. Uh, Finally tonight, the White House plans to wind down the virus task force, it says, in the coming weeks. That's according to The New York Times. Good idea? Well, I think that they need some kind of coordinating process inside the White House, and it's not really clear right now what's going to supplant this. I believe that there's going to be an increased emphasis on trying to bring coordination around the development of therapeutics and vaccines for COVID-19. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised if you saw the White House stand up some kind of process similar to the task force, maybe some kind of working group that tries to bring together the agencies to focus on therapeutics. So as this um, pandemic evolves, the focus of the White House is going to evolve as well. And so I think they're going to be focused more on the therapeutics now. So I wouldn't expect the task force just to be wound down and nothing to be stood up in its place. Appreciate your time as always, Dr. Gottlieb. Thank you. That's Dr. Scott Gottlieb, CNBC contributor, of course, the former head of the FDA. Since the pandemic began, we've been checking in, as you know, with RBC's top biotech analyst as he has charted the virus himself. CNBC's farmer reporter Meg Terrell with us once again tonight with RBC Capital Markets, Kenan Mackay. Meg? Scott, thanks so much. And Kenan, it's great to have you with us again tonight. As we look at your current modeling The news doesn't look quite so good. You note uh, in your latest note that the current trend suggests divergence away from recovery here in the U.S. What are you seeing in the numbers? Yeah, no, and and thank you for having me back, man. Uh, So one of the things that really stands out to us as as a concern is sort of where the U.S. is looking at reopening some of our economies as it relates to the number of daily cases and and where those stand versus the peak in daily cases uh, that we did see back in, in early April. And what's, what's really happened is the U.S. has sort of sat on a plateau near the peak in daily cases. Uh, so we, we haven't really come down too much as a number of countries across Europe have, for instance, as they're looking at reopening their economies. And the concern there is that as we talk about another wave of virus sort of coming back uh, as the U.S. either reopens or as we get into the fall, the concern is that that could, that could come much earlier, again, as uh, physical contact begins to, to increase as people are sort of out and about in communities uh, and, and in businesses. That, that's one of the big concerns that we have and sort of represented by our, our new worst case scenario here as we've torn apart our, our modeling and really revisited that. Uh, again, I think the worst case now, very different than what we were talking about when this virus was back in really the exponential phases of growth that we saw back in early March, for instance. Well, tell us about that potential second wave and, and what you're calling a reacceleration that you're seeing in the numbers in several states, including those that have recent, recently reopened, like Florida, Texas, and Georgia. What are you seeing in those states in particular? So minor reaccelerations, again, really driven by some of the city centers uh, within those, those states. And again, some of those numbers uh, really not necessarily representative of what's happening across the entirety of the state. Similar to what's happening in New York, obviously New York City really driving uh, the majority of the infections in the state, 
Uh, in Georgia, you know, it, it, it's Atlanta, again, similarly in, in Texas, it's those metropolitan areas. Some of the uh, reopening, uh, the economic reopening within those centers uh, looks very different than what's happening in the rest of the state. So again, very hard to sort of tease out what's going on around economic reopening with what's actually happening with some of those COVID numbers, because some of the more rural areas can be reopening quite effectively without a serious spread of the virus, whereas some of the metropolitan areas, it is a little bit of a bigger concern, maybe not uh, reopening to the extent that some of the areas are there. And tell us about what your worst case modeling now shows. You cite a potential return to almost exponential growth as the economic reopening potentially initiates another wave of viral spread. So what does that start to look like and when could we potentially be seeing that again? Yeah, thanks, Meg. So the, the way we are thinking about that is sort of within uh, one to two weeks of really major economic reopening, again, in some of these metropolitan areas. As we're looking at this within our model, uh, we're looking for signs of that sort of in, in mid-May, again, as we're thinking a number of these major metropolitan areas might be reopening. Uh, what that looks like from sort of the, the shape of this curve, as we've looked at in the past, Initially, talking about the U.S. situation back in February, back in March, that was when we were in the early phases of exponential growth. The doubling time was at its shortest. The cases were doubling every 1.6 days. I don't think we're going back to that, uh, but I think we could move back to sort of a sub-exponential phase of growth, which is where we were uh, back in uh, sort of early April, uh, as before cases really plateaued in, in mid-April and we actually hit the peak there. Uh, but again, I, I, it's not clear at all to me that we are moving towards a recovery, even though you are seeing that in several cities. Because I, I think the dynamic that's actually influencing that recovery is just the social distancing. Like, no one is going out. Everyone is staying at home. As soon as that eases, we will still have some behavioral changes that really will still help reduce the spread versus what we saw before. But that increased physical contact, I think, very much could lead to a resurgence in cases. Mm. Well, Kenan Mackay, we'll stick with you to keep watching the numbers, and we appreciate you joining us again tonight. Thanks Scott, for back me. over to you. All right, Kenan Mackay, appreciate it very much, Meg. Of course, thank you as well. Dr. Gottlieb, you're still with us. I said goodbye to you uh, too soon. I want you to react to what Kenan Mackay said. Um, not clear. We're moving towards a recovery. Talks about a sub-exponential growth. Does that match up with your thinking? I think it matches up with a lot of our concerns. We always knew that as we reopened the economy, we were going to get a bump up in cases. It wasn't going to go down. It was going to go up slightly. The challenge is that it's going to go up off of an already high baseline. We haven't reduced the amount of spread in the country to the levels that we would have thought we'd be at right now. Um, when you look at some of the models like the CHOP model, if you want to look at the glass half full and look at what could be an optimistic picture... What they model is that when you make small changes in your behaviors, when people maybe go shopping once a week instead of twice, when you do that over a population, it actually can affect the growth of the epidemic. And you can keep the, the R, what we call the R, the number of new cases that you get for each case that you have, at or below one. And that would be the goal. And so hopefully as we come out of this epidemic, people are cautious enough that their behaviors have changed that we can mitigate um, really exponential growth again. But we are going to get a growth in cases over the course of May as we reopen. And we're coming off a high baseline. And so the risk is that we continue to have spread really all through the summer at some level um, of about you know, 20 or 30,000 cases being diagnosed on a daily basis. And that's a lot because we know we're not diagnosing um, a lot of cases. We're diagnosing probably one in 10 
to one in 20 of the actual cases. Speaking of, of reopening, I asked uh, earlier on Twitter of folks who were in states that were reopening. What are you seeing on the ground? Michael Farr, who's a CNBC contributor, just wrote to me, Florida's reopening. People are on the beaches. People are in restaurants and at sidewalk tables. No face masks. Waiters uh, don't have masks. Folks seem really happy to be back out. I'm sure they are happy to be out. When you hear that of uh, people out, no face masks, um, what, make, what do you think? Look, that's concerning because what we would hope for is that when people do start to re-engage in activity, they take some additional precautions. They don't just go out the way they used to and we sort of take it slow, that people you know, do naturally social distance, they wear face masks, um, they practice good hygiene, restaurants take precautions. If it's sort of back to business as usual, that's going to be more concerning, um, that you could start to see more rapid acceleration in cases. Now, Florida hasn't had as extensive of an epidemic based on what we know, um, as we expected. So Florida, you know, dodged this to some extent, although they're not testing a lot. So we don't have a full scope of the amount of infection that they have down there. But there's a lot of states where you're still seeing growth in cases. There's more than 20 states right now where the number of daily cases is going up, not down. Now we're testing more, so we're capturing more. But even against that backdrop, it does seem to be expanding in a number of states. I'm afraid this truly is goodbye. Dr. Gottlieb, we'll see you tomorrow night. Thanks a lot. Appreciate your time as always. That is Dr. Scott Gottlieb once again. This CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil, is just getting started. Straight ahead, will business owners be able to count on money from their insurance company? The ball moved forward a bit today. That's next. Plus, if you buy an insurance policy on a trip, what's it really get you? Find out next without having to read all the fine print. Plus, big changes for costs and supply at the grocery store. Before the break, images from around the USA on the 128th day of this global pandemic. Hi, I'm Ben Rizzuto, wealth strategist at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of futures. At Janice Henderson, we are committed to helping you invest in a brighter future for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. Here are tonight's headlines on the virus. The services sector, which makes up more than two-thirds of economic activity, contracted last month for the first time in more than a decade because of the outbreak. Disney's profit falling more than 90 percent in its second quarter as the pandemic hit the company's theme parks and cruise businesses. Disney saying it will skip its first half dividend payment. Airbnb cutting nearly 1,900 jobs, about a quarter of its employees, as the travel industry, as you know, has been decimated by this crisis. And finally, gun sales in April spiking more than 70 percent from one year ago. Americans spend nearly four billion dollars on travel insurance each year. But here's a lesson learned. 
you have to read the fine print, particularly during a global pandemic. Our Andrea Day has one man's story. Imagine spending good money on a travel insurance policy that's supposed to give you peace of mind, only to find out it doesn't cover you during the coronavirus pandemic because you didn't actually get sick. Jim Goodbody spent 11000 on a trip to the all-inclusive resort Beaches Negril in Jamaica for his family of four and an extra $380 for travel insurance. I just assumed if I'm buying insurance and if the trip gets canceled or I get uh, I can't make it, we have to cancel, uh, I'd be reimbursed for my for my travel. The family was supposed to go in April, but then the pandemic hit. Well, after what many are calling a catastrophic delay, testing capacity is finally ramping up for the coronavirus in the U.S. He canceled the trip in March, and in April, beaches completely shut down the resort, returned his airfare, and told him to contact insurance company TripMate for the rest of the refund. I filed the claim over the phone. Uh, with, an, with a travel insurance agent. The reason I was canceled, I, I wrote coronavirus. But he was denied since he didn't actually catch the virus. Tripmate told Goodbody, because you did not cancel due to a sickness, we are unable to consider this to be a covered claim. I'm a victim of buyer being unaware, and it's disappointing. In the end, the travel insurance paid out nothing. But Beaches offered a credit to rebook within the next 24 months. A Beaches spokesperson tells CNBC that Goodbody, who had a non-refundable reservation over spring break, did not qualify for a full refund. Our refund policy during this time is in line with, and in most cases, more generous than industry standards. Andrea Day, CNBC. The U.S. Travel Insurance Association says most standard policies do not cover a pandemic and travelers are more likely to get credits rather than full refunds. Harder, of course, on seniors who won't know for a while when it is safe to travel again. Another big story in the insurance world tonight, state lawmakers trying to make insurers pay claims by business owners hurt by the shutdown. Tonight, new information on that fight from our Contessa Brewer. Hi, Contessa. Hi there, Scott. Yeah, in Washington, D.C., the insurers live to fight another day. The city council came prepared to do battle, but decided this was a war that would be too big and take too long to win. They debated a rule to make insurers pay on business disruption from small business. The insurance industry argued the district's businesses that employ fewer than 250 employees could see losses between $300 million and $1.1 billion per month. That's a big range, I know. These businesses, though, pay only an estimated $16 million in premiums per month. The argument found its supporters. The council killed this language, thereby avoiding an all but immediate and fierce court battle. Lawmakers in New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Massachusetts, Ohio and South Carolina have also introduced similar bills. The insurers argue only about 30 percent of companies buy policies that even cover business disruption. And in those cases, Physical damage is required for claim coverage. Still, investors are worried. They're so worried, in fact, that today's AIG stock took a big leap after its COO said on an earnings call, the vast majority of its policies contain a specific virus exclusion. So that's an additional layer of protection from legal challenges. Already, though, lawsuits have been filed. Celebrity attorney Mark Garagos suing travelers, travelers and suing him back. 
A group of famous restaurateurs have appealed directly to the president. Jean-Georges, Daniel Belude, Wolfgang Puck, Thomas Keller. They're asking Trump to intervene with the insurers. And some are even suggesting, look, just get the government to bail out insurers who pay on these claims. You know, getting the insurers, Scott, to act like the banks are in delivering the PPP is different than saying we're mandating coverage. For sure. We appreciate you following that story. Contessa, thank you. Contessa Brewer. Reporting for sure. us tonight, if you're one of the millions of Americans taking advantage of a mortgage forbearance program, you're about to find getting in is a lot easier than getting out. Here's what else is coming up on this CNBC special report. Markets in turmoil. Coming up, the food supply chain and the cost of food. The stability of both are in question tonight. And a former top intelligence officer tells us how spy agencies are tracking whether the virus came from a Wuhan lab. This CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil, is coming right back. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Methane management is a critical part of achieving a lower carbon future. Chevron is taking action to keep methane in the pipe. Their 2028 upstream methane intensity target is set to be 53% below the 2016 baseline. They're committed to evolving facility designs and operating practices. And they've trialed over 13 advanced detection technologies, including drones and satellites. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com methane. cost is up, and it's up significantly. America's food supply is getting more expensive and harder to buy. Tonight, where we stand on the grocery store line. It was natural and not man-made. And one former top intelligence official on how we will find out where the virus came from. This CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil, continues. Once again, here's Scott Wapner. Good to have you back with us. CEOs across the country working without a playbook, of course, trying to figure out how this crisis is changing their companies and the way their employees work. Many were on CNBC yet again throughout the day today. We've been very, very concentrated on what we can do on hygiene, what we can do. How do you run a warehouse with people six feet apart? That was not in, no one's trained you for that when you get a degree in supply chain management. So we had to quickly improvise on that. We are seeing country by country um, recovery. Uh, we have some businesses in, in Southern Europe primarily, uh, it's mostly food packaging. I'd say um, Italy is, is starting to recover a little bit better. Uh, then Spain, and then France. We're also learning to take it slow. 
let's not rush this as a company, as a country, uh, and locally. Let's make sure we get this right. I think it's going to change in, in some ways. There may be different ways of monitoring passengers as they're coming through checkpoints. There may be different ways of biometrics, temperature screenings that obviously will become more important in a post-COVID environment. I think it's going to be a, a, a slow but steady recovery as the more and more of the, the economy is open, but it will be slow. I, we, we do think that it's going to, going to be some time before the confidence of safety and the concerns that our members and all, all individuals using the healthcare system will have to get comfortable with. Right now, I think it is going to be all about what can you do to provide the highest levels of safety. And that means uh, testing. That's going to mean more emergency care. You know, we've got a number of places today where we do have nurses or some doctors on staff. That's going to be something as a program we're going to expand. Some of the nation's biggest CEOs, some cattle as well. Never know what you're going to get. There's new evidence of the break in the food supply chain. Our Jane Wells live tonight as prices at the grocery store are jumping. Hi, Jane. Hi, Scott. Yeah, you're going to see that cattle again in just a second. We've got a weird situation where we have plenty of animals and a meat shortage. And tonight, the attorneys general of 11 states are asking the Justice Department to investigate the choke point, the packing plant. Uh, Missouri Attorney General Eric Schmidt tweeting about a letter they sent to William Barr, quote, expressing our concerns regarding market concentration and potentially anti-competitive practices by meat packers in the cattle industry. They're, they're accusing the handful of companies which own most of the plants of intentionally creating a bottleneck though the bottleneck is also because these plants are shut down reportedly because the workers are getting sick. But there are so many animals now which cannot be processed that ranchers are losing money, selling at a loss if they can even sell at all. Yet the prices the packing houses are charging grocery stores are very high, great margins, up an estimated 24 to 30 percent in just one week. And now some Wendy's customers are asking, where's the beef? An estimated 18 percent of the chain stores are out of hamburger, because Wendy's only uses fresh beef, not frozen. It's not just meat prices that are going up. Nielsen says food inflation over the last six weeks is double the norm. Milk is up 10%, eggs up 30%. Nothing's on sale. Nielsen says, Scott, expect this for the next three or four months. But if unemployment stays high, those prices are going to come down as shoppers become more price conscious. Back to you. Jane, we appreciate it. Uh, very much for more on all of this and how the uh, coronavirus crisis has exposed the flaws in the food supply chain. We're joined now by the chef and restaurateur, Andrew Zimmern. Andrew, welcome to our program. Good to have you on tonight. Nice to see you, Scott. You have stories like Jane was just telling us, nearly a fifth of Wendy's out of beef, according to analysts. How worried should we be about food shortages? Uh, it's really a mixed bag. Uh, there are actually some food shortages that are related to personnel issues on the ground. I, I think the the biggest case for longer term shortages to look at is because of employees. Um, when it comes to the cases of dumping of crops or milk because of distribution issues, um, it, it, this is something that, you know, trucks can be rerouted. Uh, FEMA can declare an emergency and get those trucks delivering to grocery stores and to community resource kitchens instead of to uh, restaurants and schools, for example. But in the case of these meatpacking plants that have become hotspots for the coronavirus, it's because sick workers and factory closures are actually creating a 25 percent short-term shortage in the market. That's causing that spike in prices. Mm -hmm. um, there is no B team 
for those people to step into the shoes. You know, there is no uh, backup workers. When you have uh, hundreds and hundreds of employees sick at a packing plant, so many so that it has to shut down, one of the packing plants in South Dakota responsible for 5% of all the pork cut in the United States. That's going to be a massive wallop to the market. To be clear, there's plenty of food. It's the mechanism getting the food from the plant to the table that's the issue. Depends on what food you're talking about. I mean, remember, uh, cows can get milked every day. Chickens lay eggs every single day. Uh, Those are simply uh, distribution and strategic ops uh, problems that need to get fixed. I think it reveals a catastrophic flaw in Washington. A month ago, there should have been an emergency declaration and FEMA should have been in charge of distributing that food to the places where it's in need. You know, to see milk going down the drain and also to see double the lines, triple the lines at our food banks around the country is is not shameful. It's criminal. Um, In the case of the meat packing plants, it's much different. And there are lots of rumors going around. I find the calendar on this very, very suspicious uh, myself with the president of Tyson Foods coming out and making an open plea in the paper that we're going to have massive food shortages, then seeing the White House uh, place meatpacking plants under the protection of the DPA, backstopping health insurance claims, but at the same time, forcing people to work in what is notoriously the most dangerous, one of the most dangerous jobs in America. Um, these are also people that we've been demonizing and underserving uh, since the, well, the foundation of our country. So it causes a lot of problems. You're also talking about seafood this evening, which, frankly, we haven't focused on at all. We've talked about beef, poultry, pork, etc. We're 75 percent down in seafood sales across America, you say? Uh, yes. You have to remember that around 80 percent of all seafood in the country is actually sold into restaurants. So with all the restaurants shut down, there's no place for the uh, seafood buyers to sell their product. Um, I expect this to correct as some restaurants open, but nobody is talking about it. I would love to see you saw the Fed uh, come in. I think they announced this morning that they're going to be backstopping dairy farmers and egg producers and purchasing large amounts of these foods uh, for distribution. I would love to see that happen with the seafood industry as well. Sounds like we might need more bizarre foods on our plate than we thought. Andrew Zimmer. Indeed. Something we've been talking about for a long time, diversify the diet. And I think what you're seeing here is a need to decentralize our food systems. This is something that food activists and people like myself have been talking about for 15 years. The chickens are literally coming home to roost. We appreciate your time so much. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you. All right. That's Andrew Zimmern joining us tonight. About four million borrowers are now delaying their mortgage payments as part of government and bank programs. And the numbers are still growing. But some will soon find getting in was a lot easier than getting out. That's what our Diana Olick is going to tell us tonight in a beautiful live shot in Washington, D.C. early evening. Diana. Yeah, Scott, the numbers are already four times what federal regulators initially predicted when they launched this program at the end of March as part of the CARES Act. Now, to get mortgage forbearance then and now, all you need to do is ask for it. It's initially a 90-day delay of mortgage payments, though it can be extended up to a year. But this is not a freebie, and not everyone understood that at the start. So we want to explain how you get out of it, especially as the economy reopens and some people return to work. Your servicer should reach out to you 
30 days before your plan is up. And for some, that's around now. They should give you the following options. First, you can make up all your missed payments in one lump sum, but you don't have to. Instead, your servicer can set up a repayment plan for you over time, adding as much to your regular monthly payment as you can handle. Now, if you can't afford that, your servicer can set up a mortgage modification, which changes the terms of your loan, either extending it and or lowering the interest rate. Now, there are several different modification options, and some will require documentation of your hardship. So here's a really important warning. Don't lie up front and claim you need forbearance if you don't. That's real financial fraud, and it will come back to bite you if you end up actually needing some kind of modification. Now, I've heard from lenders and servicers alike that some borrowers are getting forbearance that they don't necessarily need. They want to hoard cash, or they think it's going to end up being a freebie that is forgiven at some point. And, Scott, that is just not the case. Diana, appreciate it. That's Diana Olick live in D.C. for us, and I thank you very much for that. Here's what's coming up on this CNBC special report. Markets in turmoil. Next tonight, a former top intelligence official on how we will know if the virus came from a Chinese lab. Also tonight. I've been able to support various restaurants, caterers and small businesses alike. One woman's big effort to help from her couch. Before the break, images from around the world on the 128th day of this global pandemic. Welcome back. Lots of questions and suspicions on day 128 of the coronavirus crisis. Did it come from that infamous Wuhan Institute of Virology? And if so, how will we find out? Chris Costa is the executive director of the International Spy Museum. Before that, he was the special assistant to the president and senior director for counterterrorism on the National Security Council. Mr. Costa, it's good to have you with us tonight. Well, thank you very much uh, for having me. Dr. Fauci said again today in an interview with National Geographic, there's no indication at all that the virus came from that lab in Wuhan. Our intel has said the same. The secretary of state has said there is enormous evidence. He has offered up none, however. I'm wondering whether you think we'll ever know. So, first of all, I should say that this is a significant priority for the United States intelligence community. Science can prove, for example, that the virus was not man-made, that it was not manufactured, but we might never know definitively how the virus was spread. We might not know. I'm sorry. I know. I was going to say, how how will we find out? How will we try and find out? What sorts of intelligence methods will we use? Yeah, so the methods that we'll use are first... The least intrusive would be open source intelligence. What can we glean from the media? What can we glean from non-sensitive sources? Secondly, more sensitive, clandestine sources. Do we have agents on the ground? Agents that might be able to access suspect labs, might have access to the emails, might have 
access to the workplace itself. So that's what we would be looking for. Now, if we, the United States intelligence community, don't have those sources on the ground, we have intelligence partners that might have those sources on the ground, and they will share that intelligence with the United States. So that's human intelligence. And thirdly, we have signals intelligence, of course, where we are able to understand what the Chinese are talking about globally. So we have SIGINT, open source intelligence, and we have clandestine human. But a key point I would make is this is an investigation, right? This is an analytical problem, but it's an investigation that the Chinese are not participating in. The government does not, the Chinese government does not want us to have all the truth or they would be fully participating, not just with the United States, but with the world well, what's, community. What's the likelihood that they would have already attempted to cover it up? Well, I think we're seeing evidence of that. So there is lots of media reporting that the Chinese are in the middle of a active disinformation campaign. And I think that's really important. There's an embarrassment factor and they want to minimize the impact, the, the global impact to China, the China's image itself. So it is very likely that they're in the process of covering it up. And it's up to the intelligence community, the collection that I've outlined to collect and then the analysts to assess and judge whether it came from a lab or whether it started, as I said, in a marketplace. But we might never know definitively that to is, answer your first question. That is the bottom line. That's where we'll end it as well. Uh, Mr. Costa, we appreciate your time this evening. Thanks so much. Thank you very much for right, having that's me. Chris Costa with us this evening. Coming up, how one woman is stepping up from her couch next. A New York City attorney has generated thousands of dollars in donations for healthcare workers from her living room sofa. Here's how Stacy Rotner is stepping up to help feed the front line. I decided I couldn't just sit on this couch anymore. On a Saturday night after the 7 p.m. clap in New York City, I posted a message on Facebook announcing that I was going to help feed New York City frontline healthcare workers. And in under 24 hours, I had already received $10,000 in my Venmo account. Through this initiative, I've been able to support various uh, restaurants, caterers, and small businesses alike. And we're sending meals to now over 12 New York City hospitals in Manhattan, the Bronx, Queens. My goal was to raise $6,000 and send 70 meals three times a week to three different hospitals through the end of April. Now that I've raised over $65,000, I'm in a position where I'll be sending over 1,000 meals a week. Every time I speak with the hospital administrators, they thank me profusely. And I, in turn, stop them. I tell them, this is, this is all to thank you. We are so grateful in New York City for your service and the service of your teams that are risking their lives on a daily basis. I don't want to be thanked. An update on the money raised. Stacy now says she's raised $145,000 to date and counting. Great work, Stacy. Thank you for that. On day 128 of the coronavirus pandemic, the vaccine expert who was reassigned at the Department of Health and Human Services files a whistleblower complaint excuse me, against the Trump administration. Vice President Pence says the White House, considering phasing out the virus task force in June, stocks rise for a second straight day. The Dow up today more than 100 points. 
For all of us here at CNBC, I'm Scott Wapner. I'll see you tomorrow on the Halftime Report at noon. Please stay safe. Shark Tank is next. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.